Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Today's episode will grapple with a question that has come up in other episodes, but not quite as directly. And that is, what is Byzantine literature? Or what are we talking about when we're talking about Byzantine literature? And here's why this is a problem. When we want to understand any civilization, like in the most general sense, you know, in the round, we will seek for some account of its politics, of its religion, its military history, its the structures of its economy, art, and literature. Now, most of those other categories are relatively straightforward. That is, we know what part of the society and its culture we're talking about when we use the category. But the one about literature is the most problematic. Now, some of the others are problematic too, but not quite as much. And that is because the category of literature really is inherently a modern one. If we were having the same discussion two centuries ago, we would not only not be talking about literature in the same way, but we wouldn't probably have used the term we would probably be talking about, you know, arts and letters, you know, the, the things they wrote and, and try to understand it according to sort of pre-modern categories. But literature, as any modern reader understands it, is a very specific thing. It refers to particular genres of mostly fictional writing that have emerged in the past couple of centuries, and specifically the novel. Also some categories of poetry, which we mostly understand as reflecting the poet's subjectivity in some way, in emotional terms. I won't say more about poetry here. I will refer you to um, the episode on Byzantine poetry with Mark Laugsterman, where some of these issues are raised. But let's come back to the question of literature more broadly. It is a very strange kind of challenge because our definition of literature is so narrow and so specific to, you know, modern or in fact, late modern bourgeois society that we're faced with the following kind of paradox. We have many, many, many texts from Byzantium and we can read them. We know what they're saying. We know their conventions. We understand them pretty well. There are no great mysteries about them. There are a few idiosyncratic texts. There are a few either eccentric or very innovative authors. But by and large, there are no huge problems if you're coming at it from within the conventions of the culture. The problems emerge when you try to define what about all of that corpus of writing is literature. Where are the literary elements? How should our own literary instincts and expectations be activated by it? And to what conclusion should they come? In other words, there's no real problem in the material itself that the category of literature is helping us or prompting us to explain. No, the problem arises precisely when we try to rub the material, our sources, up against the modern category of literature in order to satisfy you know, our, our own modern taxonomies about the kinds of things that societies produce. And of course, inevitably, the you know, Greek writing from that period has been found wanting um, in relation to the virtues that we expect from literature. Its poetry is seen as too prosy. Its prose is seen as too rhetorical, too conventional, too formatted by the expectations of genre as to be original, in quotation marks, in the way in which we expect it to be. The emphasis on subjectivity is really, really different from what we would expect. And again, all of this is a problem with us, not with it. It's with us. Parenthesis. One could make a similar argument about art. And yet, scholars of Byzantine art don't have the same 
kind of problems that scholars of Byzantine literature have, and they don't obsess over them as much, in part because for reasons of transmission and reasons of selection and decisions made in the field, Byzantine art has largely been identified as religious art, specifically icons. Not entirely, and I'm simplifying things tremendously here, I know, but that makes it possible to study Byzantine art as a sort of function of Byzantine religious life, and so it comes with its own framework of analysis from within the culture. All of a sudden, now you can interpret all of these you know, representations and figures from within the categories of that society and what are they doing there and how are they understood and so on. And moreover, the discipline of art history has traditionally been more open to artistic forms that don't necessarily conform to the norms, you know, prevailing at this time right now, like be it 1750 or 1950 or today. Uh, it's generally been more expansive in that way, and so it can encompass the religious traditions of past societies under the rubric of art and not impose a much more strictly limited definition as we do for literature. So if you're going to study Byzantine literature, or if you're going to be a scholar of Byzantine literature, such as my guest today is, there's a lot of conceptual heavy lifting that you have to do to explain these concepts and you know, are you picking out from Byzantine writing the texts or the aspects that conform to modern literature? Or are you changing the definition of literature that we're using, expanding it perhaps, in order to encompass uh, Greek writing from this period? Um, which is, I think, you know, what my guest does. But it all poses some pretty serious uh, theoretical and methodological issues that have to be cleared in advance of actually, you know, doing the thing. Uh, so this is going to be a discussion mostly about that problem, like how do we understand Byzantine literature? What are we talking about when we use those words? Uh, rather than getting into the sort of nitty-gritty, you know, granular aspects of this text and that text. So my guest is Stratis Papayoanou, he's a professor of Byzantine, let's say philology, <laughs> at the University of Crete. I think philology might actually even be the technical term, which nicely sidesteps the question. He is a philologist in the sense of studying manuscripts and editing texts and producing critical editions and things like that. But he's also someone who's trying to understand the broader conceptual problems that I've been talking about. And he recently edited, in pursuit of that goal, a rather large Oxford handbook of Byzantine literature where a number of chapters you know, talk about these, uh, these issues, while others sort of fill in the, the, the granular detail that I mentioned, you know, what are these texts saying and what's going on with them and so forth. Anyway, he's been working in, in, in both of those areas, both philology and theory of literature for some time. I've learned quite a lot uh, about those uh, from him, and I hope that you will too. Uh, so here's my conversation with Stratis Papayoanou. Thanks also to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Strati, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. How are you doing in Athens? Uh, great <laughs> for, for now. <laughs> great weather. So you are emerging as our spokesman, the field spokesman for Byzantine literature, you know, what it is, what to do with it. Um, and you recently published the Oxford Handbook uh, for Byzantine Literature. So congratulations. It was an enormous labor. I know I saw it from the inside. You did a lot of work. Normally, these are edited by like two or three or four people. <laughs> but you did all that yourself. Actually, why don't we start with that? What is this handbook? Can you tell us a little bit about it and, and what the goal of these handbooks generally is, but specifically of the one that you edited? Yes, um, thank you, Antonio. Thank you for the invitation. Though I won't accept uh, the role of the spokesman for <laughs> recent literature, that's too, too tough a job. Uh, in any case, the handbook, this volume is essentially uh, the result of a, of a challenge, you might say. I was asked to put it together. And at first I thought, goodness, <laughs> another handbook. Uh, but then I realized that this might in fact be an opportunity to prepare an introductory guidebook, so to speak, into Byzantine literature, essentially for the first time. 
nothing of this of the sort, at least not in this scale, uh, exists in English. Exists in English before, nor have there been similar works in any language, other language, recently at least. So I agreed. Uh, I agreed, and uh, here it is. Uh, after more than a decade of work, uh, in fact, uh, mm. and, and and as you you alluded, it it is indeed a collaborative effort, even if I'm the single editor, uh, because the book would not have happened without the effort also of the several contributors and collaborators, uh, including yourself. And they're almost, uh, you might say supernatural to speak in business terms patience <laughs> <laughs> with the imperial to speak again in byzantine slang demands of their editor in any case my purpose in putting this together uh, was to provide a series of one might say tools uh, necessary tools and frameworks by which byzantine literature might be uh, both understood and hopefully appreciated that, that would be a, a short answer to, to your question. Sure. By the way, the challenge that you mentioned at the beginning of your answer, was that Stefan? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> That's how I got roped into writing the history that I've been writing for six years. <laughs> you see. Okay, so we should commiserate on this. <laughs> yes. Uh, I actually even remember the moment. It was, a, it was in a back street in New Orleans at the uh, what was then the APA. <sighs> Anyway, and he said, say, why don't you? Uh, okay. I was in the next back street. <laughs> <laughs> he went to, right, right, right. I've got someone else to rope into a years long project. Okay. Um, so what does the rubric Byzantine literature encompass, at least as far as the handbook sees it? So what's in? Right. It will leave us aside for a moment, the, the big elephant uh, question, which is, what is literature and what is literature in Byzantium, mm. uh, which we can talk about later, I suppose. Um, let me explain first what I decided to define as Byzantine uh, literature, the emphasis okay. being Byzantine for the purpose of the handbook. And here, uh, in respect to that, I, I made two hard choices, you might say, uh, necessitated mostly by practical considerations, so as to have a manageable corpus of texts to be treated uh, by, by the handbook. The first choice uh, had to do with chronology. So basically I picked the two farthest dates in Byzantine political history, the political history of the Roman state. So 33, 333 and 1453. And the second choice was to focus on uh, anything preserved in Greek from this period, from this 11 centuries or so. Now, immediately one might say, and justifiably so, that these are arbit arbitrary choices. Take chronology, for example, uh, if defined in political terms. The Greek text, the Greek literature that was produced uh, from 330 to 1453 belonged to uh, Greek speaking and Greek writing communities that were by far they were not geographically, religiously, politically, socially, ethnically, etc., unified. They were quite averse through this long period. Mm. And also, from the perspective of literary history, not political or social history, but strictly speaking, literary history, one might again justifiably say that nothing, no major change happens in the beginning of the, the first three decades of the fourth century nor in the middle of the 15th. A lot of the things that characterize Greek literature in the third or second century CE continue into the fourth and so on. In fact, uh, some of the most important texts, uh, as well as textual traditions and rhetorical practices and so on that we, we identify as Byzantine in the handbook, were created before the fourth century. And would con some of them would continue long, uh, long into, deep into the modern uh, period, uh, after the 15th century, that is. But one had to, has to make choices when one sure. deals with uh, uh, a subject. And in some sense, uh, taking this long view of Greek literature, uh, setting this uh, long chronological period uh, into perspective, posed uh, an interesting challenge. And in many ways, the handbook's purpose was mostly to raise questions. And 
one of them uh, is is that what happens in Greek literature from from the fourth into the fifteenth century fifteenth century. Now the other choice dealing with Greek uh, has also its problems. Yes, uh, a very large number of the majority perhaps of Byzantine texts that survive were written in Greek. But as you know very well, however we define Byzantium, uh, if we are to use that word at all, many languages and more important, many linguistic and literary traditions coexisted, uh, influencing each other, uh, mutually interacting with each other in uh, or in relation to, to the Byzantine world. And in fact, it would be quite difficult to understand some uh, aspects of the Greek literary tradition uh, from the 4th to 15th century without looking at other contemporary linguistic traditions in Latin and Syriac and Arabic and Georgian and so on. For that purpose, I did decide to include chapters that detail translations from and into Greek in this period. Mm in order to have this perspective as well. But the focus, the main focus uh, is on Greek literature. That's, that's, the, that's what lies at the, at the center. Now, one last comment with respect to all of that. Uh, the, the challenge that we already mentioned earlier was in fact uh, great because by taking such a large view of the history of even just Greek literature, uh, obviously, there are uh, omissions, um, errors, uh, misreasons that have likely <laughs> entered uh, also the handbook. And that's because I cannot claim to command this entire textual tradition, nor all the scholarship about it, uh, at least not in the way that scholars of previous generations did, such as, uh, I don't know, starting with Krumbacher going to Hans Georg Beck, uh, to whom I'm afraid I'm not um, not enough uh, credit is given in the volume to Russians like Kazdan and Averinchev or Ukrainians like Sevchenko, just to mention a few <laughs> giants yeah. in our field, uh, notably all men, I'm afraid, and leaving aside any scholars who are still living. So, but this large view, as I said, had to be taken, I felt, as a matter of perspective, as an opening of a, of a question. Can I just respond to the first thing that you said about the periodization and mm -hmm. just kind of ask a question that just occurred to me now. So mm -hmm. if it's an unfair, if you feel that you're being ambushed, I can always edit this out later. Don't worry about it. No, no. But you're, you're quite right. The periodization of literature doesn't on its own follow that of the political history of the empire, like they found from the foundation to the fall of Constantinople. Those are not too obvious dates for anything happening in literature in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, to a certain degree, scholars of the history of business literature have had to follow that political periodization. And even if you look at other fields, for example, if you look at art history, it's mm -hmm. often struggled with that question, like, do we mold our periodization to follow that of the political history? Or do we come up with our own completely different one and, you know, because of iconoclasm is something that sort of sits right in the kind of middle or early middle of the period, art historians have sometimes just developed their own different periodization for how, you know, trends in art, you know, evolve and so forth. If the political sort of juggernaut was not sitting on, on right, if you didn't have to kind of obey that kind of very traditional periodization of political history, would, would you have come up with a completely different one for literature? Would you have preferred one? Or what hypothetically might that look like? Oh, goodness, that's a very tough question. And what is what is difficult is, first of all, it's very difficult to put aside these dates and periodizations which, which, we, which we are trained and <laughs> have been brought up with. So even if I say, uh, you know, introduce a new periodization, I'm sure I will have in mind simultaneously or behind it, even subconsciously, there will be, you know, aspects of social history behind it, right. and political history and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's quite, quite difficult to disassociate literature from the reality, the social reality around it. That's one thing. The, the other problem with either adopting or setting new uh, modes of periodizing, <laughs> what would be the, the, yeah, yeah. the, the verb? It has to do with the fact when we're dealing with a, um, 
with literature. So uh, the history of text, the history of discourses, and the history of language, all interconnected. In a pre-modern world where a lot of where where things change very slowly, and uh, certain traditions that are set uh, in one century may may continue uh, for quite a long time before they are really upset or changed or overcome. Mm. While in the meantime, many other traditions have, may have stepped in in the meantime, and so on and so forth. So writing the history of literature, I think, would involve a constant dialogue between what's old and what's new. And that is constant. Agreed. <laughs> Regardless of, of which point we were to begin, whether we started in the 4th, the 5th century, the 2nd century, the 11th century, or whatever, we would always have to manage, almost like a juggler, this constant dialogue between old and new. So yes, one could make new choices. The important thing in writing a history, I think, is to have a history that makes sense, in a sense. <laughs> and uh, that's, that doesn't have to do with periodization, ultimately, I think. I think period, periodizations are a convenient framework to to begin and end somewhere but they if we assign too much meaning on them i think that becomes perhaps problematic but i'm not sure i've answered this correctly <laughs> yeah i feel the same way um in a sense the answer that we both might want to say is that we don't want to periodize it because mm -hmm. i find that from homer to today there is a continual tradition that is constantly referring to you know past versions of itself and you know changing sure but never mm -hmm. in a, such a dramatic way that it requires some you know new periodization or anything like that i i, I find it a very um, in fact this is part of the reason why i got into this field because if you learn ancient greek and suddenly all this entire tradition is open to you and it's all talking with different parts of it you know at the same time and yeah, I find it very difficult to periodize. Anyways, sorry, we can close the, but it, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a crucial um, question. And one of the things I should say that is not in the handbook is any attempt to, to write a, a new history of business literature. Um, mm. I thought that that might be the next step. First one needed to cover the basics before <laughs> we can move to that more uh, larger challenge. Yeah, next time you run into Stefan in an alley in New Orleans, you'll get robot. <laughs> I'll make sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, okay, so for the benefit of our audience who may not spend all of their time reading Byzantine texts, let's answer some basic questions first. So mm -hmm. how does Byzantine literature survive to us today? And in what quantity does it survive? Uh, have we lost much? Mm -hmm. uh, can, how, how can you estimate you know, the, the ratio of the loss to what survives and how did it survive? Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's start with, with the how. I would say that Byzantine literature has survived in three main ways. The first and most important is manuscripts, handwritten books, dating either to the Byzantine period as we defined it previously or later what we call post-Byzantine manuscripts. Uh, keeping in mind that handwriting, handwritten, the tradition of handwritten books continues even after the, the invention of the printing press or the use of the printing press, the wide use of the printing press from the, 15, from the middle of the 15th century onwards. So it survives in manuscripts, uh, which were then turned into editions, printed editions. It survives in inscriptions on all kinds of surfaces from, in fact, inscriptions on books, but inscriptions on statues, icons, on floor mosaics, on, uh, uh, on the walls of churches, on funerary monuments, on the walls of, city, of cities uh, to everyday objects, <laughs> a wide gamut there of inscriptions. And thirdly, it survives through translations, uh, as I mentioned before, into other contemporary medieval languages. We have a great number of Greek texts that have not been preserved in Greek, but uh, survive in translations into, I don't know, Latin or uh, Syriac or uh, Slavic, uh, etc. Now, how much have we, do, we, do we have and how much have we lost? 
impossible to say. It would be, I think, fair to say that uh, what still survives is only a small percentage of what actually was produced, either as discourses or as texts, uh, written texts from these 1100 years in Greek. And that has to do with social history and the, the fate of the, uh, that's one of the ways in which literary history and political and social history intersect. So the more the, the boundaries, the political, the boundaries of the Byzantine state diminished, the less likely it was for certain, you know, for, for texts of regions outside those boundaries to, to survive and so on and so forth. Now, I did do some statistics in, um, in writing the introduction to the handbook. Uh, keep in mind, these are very rough statistics based mm -hmm. on, on disparate evidence. But just to give a sense of scale for, for your audience, we have about 50 very extensive historiographical texts, histories that the Byzantines wrote about, um, their, about themselves. Uh, and it would be quite a feat just to read those. <laughs> so we have about 1,500 or more eponymous authors from these 1,100 years writing in Greek. Some 5,500 uh, um, what we call hagiographical texts, uh, so texts about saints, their lives, their deaths, and so on. We have about 15 to 16,000 letters, most of them literary letters that survive. Some 30,000 poems and inscriptions, <laughs> some 60,000 uh, uh, hymns, so poetry that was used for liturgical purposes, um, songs song, uh, uh, chanted in churches. And all of this, and we have about, that's again a very rough estimate, something like 60 to 70,000 uh, manuscripts with Greek texts. Uh, that date from the Byzantine and the post-Byzantine period. If we add to this the thousands of printed texts <laughs> uh, starting, uh, you know, in the in the second half of the 15th century onwards, uh, it's a staggering number, uh, but still only a small fraction of what actually was produced and circulated during those 1100 years. Yeah, it's it's both too much for any one person to take in and and possibly not enough to represent, you know, the, the writing and reading that was going on at any particular time. Because Exactly, you know. exactly, exactly. And also, it's one of the most difficult areas of Byzantine life for us to access, mm -hmm. in part because, I mean, reading manuscripts is hard enough, but even once the text has been properly edited and published in a Mm -hmm. In a printed book, it's then the language is difficult to read. Byzantine Greek is notoriously difficult. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, uh, it is possibly the most maligned aspect of Byzantine civilization. Um, it certainly was in the 19th century and into the early 20th, you know, down to the second half of the 20th century, there's some pretty astonishingly Mm -hmm. negative criticisms of, uh, and negative verdicts about the value of Byzantine literature and like, is it worth reading? No, it is not worth reading. And you think know, incredible stuff like that. So what makes Byzantine literature so difficult for modern readers to, um, I mean, the access problems are pretty clear, but to, to understand and appreciate on its own terms such that they're, you know, it's not being subject to those kinds of verdicts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, as you say, if we leave aside the, the problem of access, uh, which is itself quite complicated, because it's not only that uh, a lot of mistakes are difficult to read, manuscripts are difficult to read, and so on, but we have to keep in mind that a very large number of these texts have not been, in fact, edited or printed. They're not even available, in a sense. Mm. Uh, so if we leave aside that complicated issue of access, uh, and we enter the perhaps even more complicated issue of the ideological lenses by through which Byzantine, Byzantine literary production has been approached or viewed, it would be difficult to, um, and in fact, I think that it has not been studied enough. I mean, this reception, the, the post-Byzantine reception of Byzantine literature and the various ways 
and perspectives through which Byzantine literature has been appreciated or not appreciated, valued or devalued. But if I were to venture just a couple of, um, let's say, driving themes, at least in the Western European treatment of the um, Byzantine literary tradition, I would uh, mention at least two things. One is Byzantine literature has been judged from two angles primarily uh, in that context. The one is classical Greco-Roman literature and the other is modern European literature or modern Western literature. Mm. Uh, and from both of these perspectives, uh, Byzantine literature is found lacking or disappointing or uh, uh, annoying <laughs> even for some. Yeah. Now, again, why is that is a complicated um, uh, thing, but perhaps one thing that we may say is there is a certain uh, identification of literature with a secular perspective, uh, even what we call humanism and um, the humanities in a sense, the a certain understanding of, of, of these concepts. Uh, and Byzantine literature, at least uh, a very large number, uh, the overwhelming majority of it, is very religious in character, or is, is op, um, how should I say, religion is at the forefront. Uh, you cannot not see it. Mm -hmm. And this poses a problem for anyone who values so highly uh, sec secu the secular aspect, the secular dimension of, uh, of literature. The other thing that I would like to say is that Byzantine literature uh, like many other Byzantine things, uh, doesn't have a modern air uh, in the sense that there is no uh, na national uh, cultural machine that supports its, uh, its reading. Mm. From the 19th century uh, onwards, we tend to associate literature in this, uh, on this large scale with nations. We, th we think of French literature, of uh, American literature, of Russian literature, and so on and so forth. Um, and these concepts are reproduced and uh, th there's a lot of uh, cultural meaning and also monetary capital and energy invested in promoting these um, the relevant texts, the relevant canons of texts, and you know the universities, the, the libraries, printing houses, bookshops, and so on. There's not, nothing of that sort behind driving the, the distribution and the perpetuation of the study of Byzantine literature, at least not in any straightforward way. And that, uh, I think, has been um, uh, an important factor in the way in the fate, rather, of Byzantine literature in the 19th and 20th century, and is still with us to some extent. To some extent. Yeah, those are excellent points, and it's always been found wanting in relation to the classical tradition, in part because it gestured toward ancient texts as its own models in many ways, and so kind of invited that kind of comparison. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and its modern place is not that of a of a corpus of national literature. Um, and, you know, so the patristic side of it has been taken on by international, you know, uh, Christian organizations, the, the modern Greek vernacular texts, which are very, very few, they sometimes appear at the kind of beginning of modern Greek literature, but they're very few. Right. And so it, the whole thing kind of breaks up um, and the bulk of it doesn't get represented anywhere. Like all of the, you know, the hagiography and the hymns and so on that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly right. It just it doesn't kind of drop into the right institutional framework for us to see it on its own terms. Right. It's an outlier in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of in that sense, you know, you, you put me in the mind of, uh, you know, the Xenophon, the ancient writer mm -hmm. who is in the shadow of Plato as a philosopher and in the yeah. shadow of Thucydides as a historian. And that's just like the worst place to be. <laughs> anyway, so he just gets no respect today. I mean, it's always like, oh, Xenophon. Okay. Anyway, I thought he was a smart guy, but anyway. Um, so what if we try to take Byzantine literature out of those distorting contexts and kind of look at it on its own terms, 
How would you then understand literature in Byzantium? What are the literary qualities that to run through a good part of this corpus and um, you know make it so that it merits inclusion in a handbook like you've uh, edited? Mm -hmm. um, again, a tough question, and in a sense, the the quickest response I could give is I don't know exactly. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that would be a very Byzantine answer, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> so it's not uh, to be accused that I'm avoiding your question. Um, let me uh, let me say the following. I think in order to start thinking about this question, I think we first need to agree uh, that literature is, on the one hand, a an anthropological woman say constant, something that exists in every human society. And that on the other hand, it takes specific forms in specific societies, specific groups, and so on. So if we agree about that, and it's not necessary that uh, literary scholars would agree in such an approach, but at least this is my understanding of it. Uh, the fact that literature exists in every human society, I think, has to do with at least three things. One is there is a constant human habit or human desire, you might say, for stories, for storytelling. Uh, a great appeal, the great power of stories to, in a sense, restructure, reorganize reality, and thus make sense of human history, of the messy, very messy human experience, whether personal experience or societal experience, communal experience. So there is this habit for storytelling, which I think is universal. Uh, the other universal feature of literature is this related ability of discourse uh, as a means of expression, like any other, like the, even just the body or, or any, any other form of art. So the ability of discourse to allow us to create images of ourselves, to, to perform, you might say, uh, ourselves as others. Uh, let's say the, the, something like the theater of discourse. And lastly, again, related to all the previous ones, is this universal human habit to indulge in language, in linguistic play, in linguistic mm. game, to, to pursue the perfection of language as a means of communication and expression, this love for linguistic form, linguistic beauty. So these three things, storytelling, performative discourse, and, and linguistic beauty, I think exist everywhere uh, where humans uh, have been and, uh, and are. And then if we agree that this is an anthropological concept, then the next step would be to ask what form does all of this take in Greek during the period in question? And that would be <laughs> Byzantine literature. Uh, and, and there a whole set of features appear and we would have to discuss and some of these um, are presented in the handbook. One of the major ones we would need to bring up is since, since we come to this material from a modern perspective and we have a certain understanding, a common sense understanding of literature. So the, and that would be a first, let's say, question to raise. And that would be, I mean, we, we tend to associate literature uh, in terms of prose narrative with fiction, right? With uh, fictional writing. And if we raise that question and we apply it on Byzantine literature, is Byzantine literature, what is the place of fiction in that, mm -hmm. <laughs> in that literary tradition, for example? That would be one literary question to, to ask of this immense, as we said, body of <laughs> texts that have been preserved. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, immediately, both the similarities and the differences uh, and the particularities of this literary tradition would, would come up. So if we, if we ask that question, and there are others, of course, if we ask that, that question, then something that, uh, again, immediately a reader of Byzantine literature uh, would recognize is how few, how, how, how small is the amount of texts that have been preserved from, from this period written in Greek that are presented as fictional, right? That are presented as such, that claim from the very beginning for uh, that, that their author claims that they are 
the creations of their imagination. And more importantly, that we're read as such, right? That, that mm -hmm. we're read as products of uh, imagination. And that brings us back to, to an earlier question, which had to do with uh, what makes it a challenge to understand or appreciate that literature, is immediately where we struggle with this, right? If there is little consciously produced and consciously consumed fictional literature, is there any literature? <laughs> Right. Uh, that, that survives. And then the answer to that, I guess, uh, if we were to be aggressively simplifying <laughs> and hopefully not aggressively simplistic, uh, would be to say that it's a matter of perspective, of preoccupation. On a second reading, in other words, if we, uh, the overwhelming majority of narrative texts that we, uh, there are many, many, that have survived from, from the Byzantine period uh, are in fact fictional, meaning they, they create characters, they create events. Uh, that's especially true of uh, a large part of the hagiographical literature that the, it is basically what we call legends, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially myths about characters and events that never actually took place. But the, the key difference is the preoccupation in a Byzantine context from the perspective of the producers and the consumers of this narrative literature. And that preoccupation is truth, right? They're understanding that these stories, even if they're essentially imagined, they convey truths about uh, both what happened in the past, uh, in the sense of the historical past, but more importantly, truths that have to do with a metaphysical understanding of the world that includes, in other words, the divine order of things uh, and, a, and a certain moral framework, right? So these texts are true and are preoccupied with truth because they're, they, they're trying to, to present reality uh, not just as it is, but as it could be, right, in a metaphysical <laughs> scenario. Mm. and how it should be in a moral scenario. So all of this has great imaginative potential, right? But imagination per se is not at the front, not at the forefront, because imagination from the perspective of the Byzantines, at least the, the average Byzantine reader and other Byzantine writer, can uh, be liable to lying, to, to uh, deceiving, to, to untruth, in a sense. I think that was a very eloquent answer <laughs> and a wonderful framework for looking at this uh, body of text with new eyes. In particular, I liked how you basically redefined literature in very general ways that, as you call them anthropological, they encompass all societies so that there's an overarching kind of framework into which we can situate the Byzantine contribution uh, to you know, world literature in a way that allows us to read it and appreciate it on its own terms and not narrow the definition to, yeah, narrative prose fiction, uh, which is what most people today think literature is in addition to, you know, poetry that's, and poetry that's supposed to be sort of like emotionally evocative and, right. you know, very mm -hmm. subject oriented and so forth. And so we break those modern assumptions, expand to a broader view of what literature does uh, with regard to you know representing the self and and pleasure in language, um, and then dive back down into the particular qualities that Byzantine literature has in that regard, and yeah, it's not about fiction; it's about truth, mm -hmm. and and yeah, a lot of fiction goes into the making of that truth, um, which doesn't right. necessarily make it false. But that's a that's a yeah epistemological question. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. it's a question um, in order, and it's a question that uh, we should acknowledge that the Byzantines themselves dealt with, right? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Concerned about, and there are. I mean, we have to keep in mind that the Byzantine literary world produced not only literary texts and literary discourses, but also a lot of writing and thinking about language, about literature, about yep. uh, precisely all these questions, but from their, their perspective, right? Yeah, it's so meta <laughs> what they're doing so often. It's 
like they were constantly struggling with the with the problems of like what am i doing now in terms of the the logoi the discourses the you mm-hmm. know how am i representing reality through these words am i yeah they're very self reflexive in that way so you've touched on pleasure a couple of times and mm-hmm. so this might be a personal question here but like do you actually enjoy reading Byzantine literature and i ask this because i i actually think it's an important question mm-hmm. too much has been written about it by people who very clearly don't enjoy it or at least want us to think that they don't enjoy it and i i think also performing displeasure at this body of work was at some time you know part of the repertoire of being a particular kind of scholar like you had to look down on it so that people don't think that you actually like it mm-hmm. which is a whole other issue but anyway I actually do enjoy reading it um, more so than modern fiction. Well, I would, what I would say to that is, yes, I, I do experience a huge amount of pleasure out of uh, reading Byzantine texts. Uh, and I think there would be some, some problem if I didn't, <laughs> given the, the amount of time I spend reading <laughs> Byzantine texts. But I do not read them for pleasure in the common sense. Um, so. But I guess here we would have to, again, define pleasure and place it in a Byzantine context, which we, I think we have to keep in mind when, again, when we approach this text. In that sense, I would say that Byzantine texts were meant to evoke uh, at least three t- basic types of pleasure. And in some sense, they can still, I think, evoke that, or um, they, they potentially they could. The first is indeed that common sense pleasure that you're alluding to, right? The pleasure, um, what we might call an aesthetic pleasure, right? The pleasure of, of reading, admiring the beauty of language or the beauty of a plot or the style and so on and so forth, and enjoying that. I think the Byzantines, and they do talk about that, also experienced this kind of pleasure and looked for and pursued this kind of pleasure in relation to literature, uh, speeches, writings, texts, and so on, inscriptions, and whatever. And in fact, something that is an important dimension of pleasure of this kind, aesthetic pleasure in Byzantium, that we have to keep in mind is that a very large number of the texts that have been preserved were not meant to be simply read silently in private uh, in the kind of lonely experience, lonely activity that is mostly reading literature nowadays. Uh, Because they they, they were meant to be read aloud, recited, heard by a large number of people. And so there was a certain kind of pleasure in listening (laughs) uh, that we have to keep in mind. It's not just reading pleasure, but a listening pleasure. And in some cases, also a a pleasure of seeing, because a lot of these texts, as inscriptions, for example, or uh, uh, the way that books were displayed and and, in the context of reading aloud, uh, literature, and also the way, I mean, a lot of books are illustrated or they they carry some form of visual uh, play on them, that the experience, the literary experience included also a, a visible pleasure. <laughs> and then there's also, if we, if we look into more rhetorical literature, and we haven't talked about, about rhetoric, which is another key concept and an important aspect of Byzantine writing that has been preserved. If we think of, of rhetorical literature there, there is the pleasure of what we might call the infinite jest of uh, Byzantine rhetorics, mm. uh, the wordplay, the allusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Byzantines or certain certain Byzantines looked for uh, or were trained for experiencing this kind of pleasure. But uh, that's only one of three types of pleasure that, that Byzantine texts were meant to evoke and did evoke. The second type, we might call it the pleasure of learning, the pleasure of understanding, uh, because as you know quite well, Byzantine logoi, the Byzantine discourses, included texts that uh, nowadays we would uh, would not associate with literature at all. Mm -hmm. They treated subjects uh, as medicine or uh, even law, even uh, military tactics, or (laughs) you name it. Any subject could be 
a subject of literary treatment, or at least was open and invited at least some literary treatment. And the Byzantines, I suppose, experience this kind of pleasure of learning as well. Uh, the third, perhaps most alien to us today, but I think perhaps the most important for the Byzantines type of pleasure is what we might call ritual pleasure. Namely, again, a very large number of the Byzantine texts that have been preserved were used in a liturgical and a performative in a ritual context, in the context of prayer, of uh, religious devotion. In that context, literature was, was meant to uh, create emotions and experiences much larger, in fact, than what average literature is supposed to do nowadays. It was a much larger thing. Remember, logos in Byzantine Greek also refers to the word, the word of God, right? Remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, a concept mm -hmm. that uh, appears earlier uh, in Philo and uh, Septuagint and so on, but and became a, a key uh, feature of Byzantine theology and Byzantine uh, understanding of, of the divinity. So uh, there is a metaphysical, in other words, dimension to uh, Byzantine, a, a lot of Byzantine literature. And this kind of ritual repetition, a kind of that translates into also various literary forms. There's, there's certain habitual types of uh, repetitive expression that we see in Byzantine literature that from the outside may seem boring or, I don't know, unnecessary or tiring or whatever. But from the, from the perspective of ritual, they were, imagine them being quite addictive, quite, quite inviting, and possibly for some readers or listeners, quite transformative. One of the episodes I is cited in the handbook is a story from a text that was widely read uh, in Byzantium, a very important foundational text for Byzant the Byzantine literary tradition. That is the life of the first ascetic by the name of Antony. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> so at very early in that life, there is an episode that's been narrated where Antony, who is not yet an ascetic, goes to church and listens to the gospel and uh, the reading of the day is, you know, if you want to be a true Christian, you have to give up all of your belongings and abandon everything and follow me. And as soon as Anthony hears that, he immediately goes out of the church and sells all of his belongings and, and begins his, basically his ascetic life. And this is an episode that is repeated again and again at various later such stories, exactly because it, it conveys a very basic truth for the understanding of discourse. That discourse is not only something that you listen to as pastime and, uh, and then you, know, you return to your <laughs> everyday life, mm. but it's something that is meant to transform you, to, um, to make you change your ways and become something other than what you were before. And that it can do it almost in a, um, in a ritual, almost by default, it has the, it, it, ha it does have this power. Yeah, can, can I add a very minor pleasure of my own? Uh huh. Of and course. that is, no, no, it's in a certain way the, the sort of deciphering the syntax, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You dealing with a competent author, they will not be trying to write in the clearest, easiest way possible, which is our default expectation in like English prose, especially English, which is a very empirical language, right? Which is great for scholarship and other things, but no, they are crafting a sentence structure that you need to look at and look at again and think about in order to figure out how the parts are related and usually when you do that, you figure out something that isn't obvious when you're reading it. Mm -hmm. And that's a well-crafted sentence because it makes you stop and read and think, and like, oh, I, I see what you're saying. So I'm often told, and you probably get this too, but like people think like, oh, you can read Byzantine prose like it's English. And mm -hmm. like, yeah, on a certain level, like when I'm reading Theophanes, the confessor, sure. But 
a challenging author, no one ever read that author, even then the way we read like, you know, a newspaper today or something like that. It was meant to be challenging. Mm -hmm. And it was meant to make you think about the sentence, the sentence structure. Uh, and I find that not all the time, obviously, sometimes it's infuriating, because if, if you have an author who can't do that, well, you just end up with confusion, and you don't know what's going on. And it's obscure. But a, a great author, Gregory of Nazianzus, for example, mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. write a complex sentence that really but once it clicks wow it's, it's wonderful i don't know i just kind of enjoy that 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 wrestling with that well obviously i totally understand and sympathize with you and uh and agree with you sometimes when i teach byzantine literature of this kind and this would be learned rhetorical literature like gregory Nazianzus or Pselos or whomever uh, when what I say to the students is that you have to approach this as, as if it is the classical music of the period. Mm. In other words, it requires a certain training and a certain patience to, uh, to get into it uh, because it involved patience and a lot of training on the part of its producers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you're right it often works it's like an intellectual puzzle so sometimes i i hope i were as talented as i don't know uh david foster wallace <laughs> he would be the perfect translator of uh, byzantine sentences mm. you know uh, another writing in english as you say but writing in, in a complicated and um and rhetorically uh effusive way so Yes, there is that pleasure as well. <laughs> We're almost out of time. Final question. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can make this about the field, uh, the studies, Byzantine yeah. literature, and where it's at, where it's going, where you think it should be going, where it should be investing its energies. So any final thoughts about that? Yes, I think one of the things we have achieved, I, I don't mean in the handbook, but... Uh, or just in the handbook, I hope. But uh, in general, uh, people who study Byzantine literature is uh, to establish this idea that this is a literature that can and should be read as literature, and not only as source <laughs> for right. or a distorting source, as some might say, right, of right, political, right. social, anthropological, or whatever history you might uh, want to to study, which is equally fine but it's a literature that also deserves to be read as literature and starting from that i think there's so much that that can be done and should be done uh we need to do more cross-cultural more cross-linguistic work linking the greek literary tradition with the traditions in other contemporary languages but also comparing various traditions that are can be compared uh, from that same time period. Uh, we can do much more in the reception and uh, what we mentioned before, the, the ways in which business literature has been read. But there's also things, uh, very basic things that still <laughs> can and should be done that have to do with editions of text, translation of text. Uh, we have to think uh, anew about how, in fact, we edit and translate uh, Byzantine texts how we want to make them available uh, by different media to different and new audiences. Uh, and it's equally, I think, important to preserve the basic skills of reading Greek, of reading manuscripts, of reading yeah. inscriptions. We should not forget that. So my final thought, if, if, if you want to call it that, uh, for, for this discussion might be to urge readers to read more <laughs> Byzantine texts, to look at it as literature, because ultimately, I think, and, and only that, that reading literature, not just business literature, is a humanizing process. It makes us human. This, this encounter, this dialogue through language with, with the other. And uh, it may not have an, any immediate practical application, but it, it addresses a much more fundamental human need. Uh, and, and that's, that's what I would uh, call for. <laughs> Read more. <laughs> Again, you're more eloquent than I can be. Um, I'll just second the importance of philology 
in addition to all of the, the theories of literature and the cultural studies and all of that, we really do need to keep up the basic skills, reading and editing texts and translating. And uh, they're just really essential. Um, but I also want to thank you, not just for coming onto the podcast, but for all the work that you've done to make our understanding of Byzantine literature more nuanced and more profound and to move it away from these modern categories where, as you explained, it will not flourish if we keep putting it into those categories because they're not made for uh, it. Uh, so thank you again, Srati, all, also for your work on the handbook. It was a, it was a great process with you as an editor. So yeah, the thanks yeah. belong to you, Andoni, uh, on, on all those counts you, that you just mentioned. <laughs> So uh, until the next occasion, I hope we will have another one to bring you on again. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Already. <laughs> Thank you.